You see, the thing about uh, encountering a church is that in our lives, uh, doing something new it requires sort of breaking through walls, right? And sort of the cloud of the unknown. So if you are someone who is involved in church and you're finding life uh, here, uh, friends and neighbors and people that you know and encounter, you can help break down some of that that sort of that's totally new or strange. And so it's really important that Christians are are invitational. Not only do we live on mission with God in our neighborhoods and caring for our city and justice and cleaning and all of those things, but also that sense of inviting. And there is a statistic that says that a lot of people are are open to considering coming to a church if someone they know who they consider sort of normal and, and regular person, right? You know, like most of us, few of you, I don't know, but most of us, uh, you know, we're doing life out there in the city. Um, it, it, that's really the invitational thing. And, and uh, so take advantage of that. Consider bringing and inviting someone, um, you know, and not be pushy, tr- completely transparent, but say, hey, this is something that's been of value to you and have those conversations. Um, and that video was great, by the way. That was awesome. I know uh, none of you were expecting that twist at the beginning. So uh, anyway. This morning, uh, we're glad you're here today, and as we reach the end of summer, we've been going through a series this summer, rotating, going through the Gospel of John, but then another series called Under the Rug, things that we sort of sweep under the rug, we don't necessarily talk about. There's many, many things on that list. Um, Come September, we're going to switch that topical series and go through the vision uh, values that the church has identified, some uh, retweaking of that, so I'm really excited for that, and then we'll pause the Under the Rug series. Uh, But today, we're going to get into that. Uh, before I do that, there are two things that I wanted to mention. One is um, we are doing an all-leadership meeting on September 1st, Saturday, September 1st at 10 a.m. Uh, it will be here or downstairs, depending on how warm it is and what we need. Um, and that is for anybody who's leading anything uh, or is a potential leader in our church. We've been going through Sticky Teams by Larry Osborne and also talking about different aspects of leadership in our church and planning uh, for the fall and winter season as well. So please come to that. Uh, you are all welcome to that. If you're attending here and uh, and uh, you're leading or you will be leading something, please come to that. It is for you. Um, the other thing on Monday night, I do a drop-in, but generally in summer, it's been if someone's contacted me, but I try to make my Monday nights open to meet up. If you want to meet up with me at a coffee shop or wherever, just let me know. Uh, I love to hear your stories, what God's doing in your lives. And uh, I, I'm not pushy about that, but I love to hear from everybody. And so if we haven't done that, please take advantage of that time. If Monday night doesn't work, I can arrange my schedule and we can find another time that works for you. Um, so please keep that in mind. And I was going to say, too, thank you to everyone who came out to the prayer night. It was the second one we've done uh, in this season of Pilgrim. And it was a good night of just seeking the Lord and wrestling with different practices of prayer. We pray twice a month as a body, as a whole church, and then home groups usually have a time of prayer once they get going as well, um, weekly or every other week or whenever they meet. And so Saturday mornings are one of those, and then there's a, we've been doing an evening one. Uh, this was the second evening one. And so there'll be more information about that as we get feedback and plan uh, what the fall will look like for prayer gatherings, because prayer really is the engine of the church. It is the thing that the, the work of the spirit realm before it manifests in the natural realm is what we do when we pray, both in changing us and, who, and, and aligning our hearts and becoming better versions of who we are through God's grace and cooperating with his grace through prayer and scripture and worship and service. 
Um, but also, we believe prayer changes things and circumstances. In Scripture, it's both. It's not just changing us. It's also some one of the variables in creation that brings about change. And so we want to continue to increase the temperature of prayer in our church. So thank you for those that have been participating um, in the gatherings and certainly in your own time of prayer. Okay, uh, I think we'll jump in this morning into what we, we want to talk about um, how many of you, if I could get a show of hands this morning, really appreciate your smartphone for what it does for you, your scheduling, your life, your entertainment? How many of you really appreciate your smartphone? Come on, raise them high. Come on, I know. Come on. Yeah, okay, all right. I, I, now, how many of you, that's almost, I would say, 80% of the room, uh, and then those of you that are still on a landline and flip phone, I understand. Uh, how many of you uh, really also kind of hate your phone? Hate your phone. Like it's just a struggle. Or it's just really dominating in your life. Okay, anybody? All right. You can put your hands down. One guy who does this poll said that uh, he often sees that in groups that usually it's about 75% of the people raise their hands for both. So there's a large overlap. In my own life, it's something I've been wrestling with about how do we engage with social media, Instagram, whatever it is, you'd use Snapchat, Facebook, uh, just on and on, Twitter, on and on and on and on, and how we interact with that. And so this message is a little different than a normal message for me. Um, I'm preaching to the choir here, meaning almost all of us wrestling with how do we integrate technology and spirituality and how do we ask good questions about when we should not be and we should, we should separate from those things from time to time. So this morning, I'm really going to give you two scripture verses and then I'm going to share with you some statistics about um, both what we would say are our social media and engagement with technology and digital media in particular. Um, this would also include categories of whether we're talking about social media, um, all the different versions and things that are out there. This would also include things like gaming, uh, online time that we spend. Uh, you could put a lot of things in that category of how we use our screens, our small screens, our large screens, and, and what it is and how it shapes us, and that it is not a neutral thing in how we do that. So we want to wrestle with that today. But to do that, first, I want to set context of... Uh, obviously, in the first century, uh, there was not uh, this kind of technology around. And in case you're, you're new to Christianity, um, it was about 2,000 years old and comes uh, based out of a, a root out of Judaism, the fulfillment of that, as Jesus said. So thousands of years old. And we don't see scriptures particularly about technology per se. But there are principles and ideas that we can go to scripture and wrestle with. And so we want to do that this morning. I want to read two verses give you a little bit of the context, and then dig into uh, more thoughts on uh, digital distraction and addiction and how we do need to start having and opening up conversations about that. So this is a little more of a talk, a little less of my uh, normal preachiness, uh, but it's, well, there'll be some of that, of course, because it's me. <laughs> um, but we want to dig into that. So if you're with me, would you say yes? yes. Okay. So the first verse I want to read to you today is, is from the book of Corinthians, and you can just listen since I'm going to do two different verses within 1 Corinthians, or you can turn there if you want, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul, the context for the verse I'm going to read is he's talking about what we do with our bodies, in particular sexuality, which we talked about two weeks ago, and we'll come back to again because, hey, we're still in a body till uh, we die. Um, and so 
he's talking about our, our bodies in this sense, but he starts it off in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and he says this. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read verse 13. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. He's following Jesus. He's an apostle in the early church, but not everything is beneficial. Just because it's legal or that scripture doesn't necessarily explicitly prohibit it doesn't necessarily mean it's beneficial. And so there's some uh, discernment that we have to do as relates to what we do and how we live in a body. He said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled. The second half, B part of verse 12, but I will not be controlled by anything. Now we're getting into what we might say in more modern language, the issue of addiction or the issue of being uh, uh, captivated by something in an extreme, uh, this, this, um, uh, this sort of pull towards things, other language that we would use in modern uh, terms. But this idea of addiction or controlling, if something has a controlling influence in my life, but I will not be controlled by anything. Verse 13, he gives an example of food. That's a dangerous one in the church. When I've talked about alcohol and gluttony, it's interesting that Scripture puts those together. Uh, Fundamentalist, hardcore Christians on the right and left tend to want to separate those two, but those two are often together. What we do with food and what we do with alcohol uh, are put together a lot. Glutton and drunkard are two phrases in old school language that were slapped together a lot. But he says, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both. And then he talks about shifting into sexual immorality in the last half of verse 13. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I like how he used the word food in there. Because it's really easy when we talk about issues of addiction and controlling behaviors in our life to look at our neighbor and their struggle. And he pulls food in because every human has to eat. And all God's people said, okay. (laughs) Breathe. All God's people have to eat. So, so he's doing that intentionally. Not everyone has to engage in sexual practice. You can be celibate and you will not die. And if you're a teenager, you may not understand that yet, but you will not die. It's going to be okay. Savior, you know, anyway, that's another sermon. Uh, don't, don't distract yourself. But he says, food, we all have to eat. And so I love that he pulls it in here when he's talking about wrestling with things that are beneficial and knowing how to begin to ask boundary questions and ask, how is this shaping me? How is this forming me? Technology, we don't have to engage with technology, but the reality is in modern life, uh, most of us do or do have to in some way, shape, or form. And we are, uh, if you look back historically, we embrace technologies that previous generations would not have. I think about some of the fights that churches had when organs came in, this demonic beast over here. And then I think of the later generations when they fought about those guitars and singing off the wall. Oh, my goodness. You know, well, this is not new. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the church. How do we wrestle with technology? How do we use it? How do we embrace it? When those hymnals came in, which, you know, now we often sing off the wall. When those hymnals came in, I mean, that was radical technology in the church in the, back in the day when a hymnal came in. I remember working through some churches dealing with worship changes and transitions. And I remember one lady, I will never forget, came to me, uh, was upset that the worship team was moving in a certain direction and we weren't using the hymnal as much. And this was a church where we still had a traditional service where we did use the hymnal a lot, uh, but said to me, you need to be teaching the, you, me as the pastor. Your job is to teach people how to read notes and to read from the hymnal. 
I said, okay, you show me where that is. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was much kinder than that. But I wanted to say that. Uh, uh, I was younger and dumber than I am now. Now I know how dumb I am, whereas when you're younger, you don't realize that until you're older. Um, emotional intelligence comes with time. But those radical technologies, and, and how do we integrate them? And, and then sometimes we idolize technology of the past just because it's become normative. So all of that should be in our background. All things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. Would you say that with me? I will not be controlled by anything. Um, and so when we look at that, there's a choice we're making in what we do with our willfulness. And of course, Scripture does call us to submit to one another in love, and there's other things we are called to release control, but in a healthy sort of non-toxic way. Now, one other Scripture I want to read, and then we're going to jump into this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just a few chapters later, verse 23, he's addressing again our bodies, things that we do with our bodies, context. And in this case, it specifically is food, again. But in Corinth, uh, many gods were worshipped in Corinth, and as Christianity is coming in, the issue became, can I eat the food that was offered to an idol if I'm visiting someone in their home? So you'd have all these idol sacrifices. You know, it'd be like a little bit of worship and barbecue uh, and uh, to the idol. And the issue of, can I eat this food? And Paul gives some context. He says, basically, well, if the food was taken out of the temple, then resold in the market, and nobody made a big deal about it, go ahead and eat the food. He says, but if your neighbor, and I'm, I'm getting this, you can read this all later, but he says, if your neighbor tells you, I got this at the idol meat market after the barbecue at the temple, uh, then he said, now you shouldn't eat that food if he gives you this context for it, because now you've been told about this spiritual context and your brother or sister who has come out of that idolatry may stumble and ask, why are you as a Christian eating this food that you know was offered to the idol? If it was sold in the market and you don't know and nobody makes a big deal about it, eat the food. But if it becomes an issue where it may cause your witness for Jesus Christ to stumble in this case, then don't eat the food. He's calling us to be mature and wrestle with how does it impact me and those around me. And so he says this in verse 23, he said, everything is lawful, that same language again, Freedom in Christ or legally lawful out there in the culture when we're wrestling with things like alcohol and drugs and all of that, we really need to ask these questions and go deep into the word. He says, everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Same language again. Everything is lawful, but not everything builds others up. Well, I'm a North American person. It's all about me and narcissism, and it's all about what I want to do. And here, Paul's saying the Christian ethic is determining what does it do to others around me, particularly those that don't know Christ. Not your overly sensitive, legalistic brother who knows the Bible backwards and forwards and all of that. That person needs to learn more about mercy and grace. We're talking mainly about those that are on the edge of the kingdom of God or considering Jesus. How does it build up the body of Christ in the church? Or if someone that's struggling with something, you don't drag them along. If you have freedom in Christ to drink alcohol, but your brother has struggled with alcoholism, you would be a fool and you would violate the law of love and you would sin if you say, hey, let's go meet at the bar. Another brother doesn't have that issue. That's a whole other sermon. But it applies to these issues of addictions and controlling things in our lives. And we have to be wise and we have to wrestle with what the scripture actually says, not what we want it to say, not necessarily what we might have been told in a tradition, but what does the scripture say? He goes on here and says, verse 24, do not seek your own good, but the good of the other person. He says, eat anything that's sold in the marketplace without questions of conscience. 
Doesn't matter where the barbecue came. If it was sold in the marketplace, you can eat it. Don't worry about it. He said, for the earth and its abundance are the Lord's. And we might say this about technology. We might say this about all truth is God's truth, how we wrestle with these things. But if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you want to go out, and you want to go rather, eat what is ever served without asking questions of conscience. So if someone invites you into their home, uh, he says, you don't have to get all worked up about this. And remember, Paul's coming from a Jewish context where there were all kinds of dietary laws, teaching mostly Gentiles and some Jewish believers now. So if you go into their home, eat, enjoy the food. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, do not eat it because of the one who told you and because of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but the other person. For why is my freedom being judged by another conscience? And he goes on and talks about this idea of giving thanks and seeking God's glory in all situations and not necessarily trying to give offense to the Jews who had a totally different dietary rule or the Greeks who had a totally different dietary rule. He said uh, in verse 29, or to the church of God. He talks about this idea of not being self-seeking in our freedoms. So that applies to a lot of different things. Now we're going to drill it down to technology today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this place. And thank you that you've given us a brain and that all truth is your truth. And you've also given us a tradition, the democracy of the dead that matters to us, both in the scriptures and in the history of the church, not just our church, but the church universal. And so, God, we want to discern well today. We want to wrestle well and want to ask some good questions about technology in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to say amen, amen. Are you still with me? Good. All right. Great. You've not distracted to death yet by your phone. Wonderful. James Wetmore, an engineer and social researcher at Arizona State University School for the Future of Innovation in Society, he said this, at the beginning of the age of the automobile, the car, nobody said, all right, 30,000 people a year are going to die, yay car. Is this a decision we really want to make about the automobile? What did happen, he says, is a very intense discussion about whether a car should be allowed on the road... And who should be at fault when a car drives over a four-year-old in the street? He said, in the 1930s, we ended up as a society deciding that four-year-olds should be the one to blame. And he explains it. We began to train people even before they began to speak about how to cross the street and how to avoid it in the street. We redesigned our world to be safe for automobiles and dangerous for children. Those are the conversations We are having today as we talk about technology. He said, I never thought about it that way. He said, in 1915, the safest place for your kid to be in 1915 was to be on the street because that's where everyone played. And he's talking about New York. He said, in New York City, strangers might come and go, but there was always a neighbor looking out the window, looking out into the street. He said, we had parks, of course, but but the proliferation of parks came after we decided the automobile should be allowed to take over the streets and we had to find another safe place to take our children. He said, so we redesigned our cities to make them safer for automobiles. I find it interesting now that because of our issues with technology and the advancement of technology, we're thinking about automating automobiles so we can be more connected on our phones. That should cause and cause you to think a little bit about this, about how technology shapes us and forms us. I'll be honest, in my line of work, which is people in Jesus, 
Technology is a way I connect. You guys will get texts from me. You'll get social media messages from me. If I haven't seen you for a while, I put a tracking device. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Ooh, it's a creepy church. Get out now. Toxic Christianity. Go. <laughs> another sermon for another day. Um, no, no, no. Just kidding about that. But we connect via technology. In fact, if you're an older generation person, and I'll still call people on the phone, and I call through the directory, probably doing that again soon. Um, but I, younger generation, like, don't you actually use the phone to call somebody? Like, that shifted technology. We text. We message. And some of us even have sort of a built-in fear of the phone ringing. In the old days when the phone rang, you had that fear that you would miss the call, and you would rush to get the phone, and to make sure that that call was answered. Uh, for the generations, it's probably my generation and down, when you hear the phone ring, I'm like, oh my goodness, it must not be somebody that I know. They're calling me. Do I actually want to? Well, I'm a pastor, so I do answer the phone. But every, you know, uh, I don't want to answer that phone. Who is it? They can leave a message, and then many people don't even check messages. And so this voicemail box is full or has not been set up is very common now with the younger generation. Generation. And so this idea of technology and how it shapes us. I don't like the time, and yet I, I want us to ask questions about how it's shaping us this morning. There's an important principle about freedom, about what we do in Christianity with the freedom we've been given. Again, Paul points out that not everything is beneficial, even if it's lawful, even if we're free to do it, whether in civil society or according to the teachings of the law of love of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we know that we can't serve, for example, Matthew 6.24, both God and money. Uh, we need to start asking ourselves if we can serve both God and social media and, and our current ways of communicating and technology. Put another way, how often is our time on our phone, and by phone I'm using that as a generic term, think computer if that's you, think gaming if that's you, if you're a gamer, how much time are you putting in that, helping us think about what Philippians 4.8 says, we're to be shaped by whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy? Or is our constant connectivity keeping us from being still and knowing God is God, as Psalm 46.10 talks about? These are things that believers need to start really wrestling with. And we're not anti-technology, but we should not be blindly embracing it as shaping us fully and understanding that it is not neutral. It does shape us in some ways. So let's talk a little bit in the outline here. What are some of the promises of technology? Well, the promises and the problems. First, the, some of the promises. We're connected and we're instantly connected more and more. And the globe has been brought together. And this is a beautiful thing. I love that, uh, as I just heard that uh, Shannon Liu is back from serving in Hong Kong this summer, one of our young students, and she could stay connected with her family easily while she's in Hong Kong. Not that long ago, you couldn't do that. Or it would be a very expensive phone call, and even farther back, couldn't do it at all. Via letter, maybe, and there'd be a long delay. Think about uh, another young student who was serving in Romania, and we could get images and emails and videos about what she was doing in Romania. So there's some beautiful advantages. The church can spread its message all around, and yet there are countries, like we prayed for mainland China, communist China is trying to build the great firewall and, and deny VPNs and try to destroy this sort of freedom that the internet has brought and bring it back under control. Well, you know when governments are doing that, it tells us something that we need to wrestle with as well as believers. Of course, it might be for nefarious reasons versus reasons that bring us freedom in going deeper. What are other promises? Instant information. We have access to instant information. I'm going to be sharing quotes today from uh, a few various uh, 
universities and researchers and some of them in articles in different uh, reputable news sources. But uh, all of that information, it's easy to get information. Of course, the question we have, the problem side is, do we know what to do? Information doesn't equal knowledge, mind you. Nor does it equal emotional intelligence, how we interact as living beings. So there's some great strengths of technology. But there are also problems. Let's just talk about a few today. The first one I want to identify is the loss of concentration and creativity. The loss of deep thinking or concentration and creativity. That this idea of how do we develop new knowledge and depth about that knowledge is being stymied. Literally, our attention spans are being shortened. Our ability to think deeply is being shortened. In fact, one article in the Globe and Mail put it this way, quoting a scholar, he said, the evidence for this goes beyond the carping of Luddites, which were a group in England when the Industrial Revolution was going on that smashed the machines because they wanted to stop the technological advancement of the Luddites. He said, it's there cold and hard in a growing body of research by psychiatrists, neuroscientists, marketers, public health experts, what these people say, And what their research shows is that smartphones are causing real damage to our minds and our relationships, our ability to think deeply, and our emotional intelligence and creativity related to those things. They make it more difficult to daydream and think creatively. In order to enter into the play of God's spirit in worship, you actually have to disconnect from those types of things to be present in this moment And the church, we have a valuable gift to give to the world in terms of our gathering for worship. People say it's becoming less and less important with connectivity, but in fact, we need to use that as a tool, but to understand that when we do this, we should disconnect from that in order that we might experience deeper thinking and the connectivity of relationship and the work of spirit and community. And humans are losing those capacities if we do not ask critical questions and we don't begin to look at our technology with a little more sense of this is not neutral, it is shaping me, but I'm going to push back strategically so it's not the only thing shaping me. For some of us, it's become the main thing and the only thing that shapes us. And these are secular researchers Nicholas Carr in the Wall Street Journal talked about scientists have begun exploring the question. What they're discovering is both fascinating and troubling. Not only do our phones shape our thoughts in deep and complicated ways, but the effect persists even when you're not using the device. Some research has shown that the brain grows so dependent on technology that the intellect begins to weaken. Andrew Adrian Ward, a cognitive psychologist and marketing professor at the university, and I'm trying to get you to be aware of this, to kind of, I don't want to scare you to attention, but I want to bring you to attention about this. If you need a little bit of scare, the Monsters, Inc., we scare because we care, so be it. There will be a hopeful turn. <laughs> we won't leave you in the dark. But a cognitive scientist and marketing professor at the University of Texas at Austin has been studying the way smartphones and the Internet affect our thoughts and judgments for over a decade. And in his own work, as well as the work of others, he has seen mounting evidence that using smartphones or even hearing one ring or vibrate or give you the little electrical uh, twinkle on the corner produces a welter of distractions that makes it harder to concentrate on a difficult problem or job. The division of attention impedes reasoning and performance. Let me give you some more in case you've missed this point. In 2015, the Journal of Experimental Psychology study involved 166 subjects and found that when people's phones buzz or beep while they're in the middle of a challenging task, their focus wavers and their work gets sloppier, whether they check their phone or not. Just that 
little dopamine or adrenaline hit or whatever it is. Another 2015 study, which involved 41 iPhone users, appeared in the Journal of Computer Mediated Communication, showed that when people hear their phone ring, they are unable to answer it, their blood pressure spikes, their pulse quickens, and their problem-solving skills decline. So when we talk about practices to help us, we talk about isolating that phone for some time during your day or during a week. It actually is really important that you're not getting any of those cues. Another study, I'll just give you a few more here. Researchers recruited 520 undergraduate students at University of California, San Diego, and gave them two standard, standard tests of intellectual acuity, their intellectual being on the ball. And one test gauged their available cognitive capacity, their, their available space for thinking, and a measure of how fully a person's mind can focus on a task. And the second study assessed fluid intelligence, your ability to interpret, to solve an unfamiliar problem. The only variable was the location of their smartphones. Get this study, the location of their phone, where their phone was located. That was the only variable in the study. This is crazy town. He says this, some students were asked to place their phone in front of them on their desks. Others were told to stow their phones in their pockets or their handbags, and others were required to leave their phones in a different room. Oh, this will just kill me. Different room. Okay. Somebody's like, oh, that's okay. And so, others were required to leave their phones in a different room. And he says that the results were striking. In both tests, the subjects whose phones were in view posted worse scores, while those who left their phones in a different room did the best. And the students who their phones in their pockets or bags came out in the middle. Apparently, even as the phone's proximity increased, brain power decreased in this study. So for the next church business meeting, everyone will lock their phone over in the office. <laughs> Seriously, this has implications. And this is not, these are not necessarily Christian researchers. These are just researchers out there doing their thing. A second experiment conducted and produced similar results, also while revealing that the more heavily students relied on their phones in everyday lives, the greater cognitive penalty, meaning their ability to think and process, suffered. There's more that I could go on and on. This idea of phones uh, decreasing and brain drain. We are losing something if we do not think of our technology in more nuanced ways instead of just receiving it as pure, sheer gift from the gods on high or from below or from the Lord on high. Or from hell. <laughs> the reality is technologies are not neutral. Two other problem points, and then I'll leave you with some what-to-dos. If you're still with me, would you say yes? The second one here is that children and teens are hit even harder. Those developing brains are harmed even more. In depth and in emotional intelligence, developed through real relationship and friendship. There's been a flurry of studies that say this. One quotes this from The Guardian. That the overuse of technology is making us miserable. Social media has been linked with depression. Overuse of social media has been linked with depression, particularly in young people. In 2010, all the way back in 2010, one study found teenagers who spend five or more hours a day on electronic devices. Hear this, everybody, including my children. They're like, yeah, you've told us this before. I send them links, too. Isn't that helpful? I'm sending them links on their smart. Yeah, okay. I understand, I understand. And they point out this hypocrisy because they love me, <clears throat> I think. Um, 
A 2010 study found teenagers who spend five or more hours a day on electronic devices are 71%, 71, 71% more likely to have a risk factor for suicide than those who spend less than an hour a day. Think about this. So as your brain is developing, and for men, it's into your early 20s. I mean, I'm 40, just over 40 now, 41. I mean, I think my brain is still developing, but whatever. At least that's what my wife says. Um, into your, this is important time, and if your brain is so immersed in that screen time, it's doing something to you. Good news is our brains are, there's plasticity, and there, you can change things as well, but in youth, this is so important. Eric Piper, a, a Pepper, a professor of health education, and Richard Harvey, associate professor of health education, proposed that the excessive use of smartphones bears strikingly striking similarities to those diagnosed with substance abuse. If we're going to talk about alcoholism and marijuanaism, whatever that is in Canada, I'm still learning. Um, if we're going to talk about overuse and abuse, we need to absolutely talk about this when it comes to phone. He says, behavioral addiction of smartphone use begins forming neurological connections in the brain in ways similar to how opioid, think about the drugs, whether you're talking heroin-derived drugs, uh, uh, narcotics, opioid addiction is experienced by people taking Oxycontin for pain relief. Gradually, explained Pepper in a news release. You can sit there and rail against those that are dealing with other addictions, but if you're on your phone all of the time, guess what? Come off of your throne of false holiness. Just let that soak. I am getting preachy this morning. Who knew? But sometimes we need to hear this, right? I do. Preaching to me. Talks about this and he goes on, Researchers conclude that being addicted to technology, powering social media, may actually have an adverse effect on nurturing and developing new social connections. Talk about false relationship versus what you do in real relationship. Home church, home group, real relationship. It's hard, but it's worth it when you push through. Church, we can be the new neighborhood where we draw people around all of our different networks. Uh, This is important. One of the roles that we have to play is helping people become human again. As we become less and less humane, thinking that our technologies are connecting us more, the research is saying it's actually less and superficial and we're losing emotional intelligence. And we wonder why people are raging in the States, left and right, and they're fighting all the time. It's because we've reduced our ability to be neighbors and to engage in uh, real, deeper discussion about issues and you're seeing it just, uh, uh, just obliterate the public process. And what is the answer? Is the answer the social credit system uh, back that our, some of our Christians in China are getting persecuted by? I mean, uh, I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is to get smarter and more creative and to go deeper and to create space. So the last problem I already hinted at is addiction. Addiction or dependence, it's a fine line. However, developing a compulsive need to use your device to the extent where it interferes with your life, stops you from doing things you need to do, is the hallmark of an addiction. There are three types of digital addictions. Um, it's time to log off.com speaks about. He says they say this in their digital addiction uh, group, uh, support group, said phone addiction, internet addiction, and social media addiction. Internet addiction, I think, would include things like gaming. Um, we can also veer into the issues of pornography and sexuality. We're not going to cover that today, but that certainly is scratched that in this. Relevant magazine, a Christian magazine, says this, a study in psychological reports, disability and trauma seem to imply that social media withdrawal resembles that of a drug addict crashing back down to earth. If you do some of these practices that I'm going to end with this morning, you may go through withdrawal. And if you find that you have to, get back to whatever it is that the Lord's tell you, you need to take a break for 
some hours out of a week or a day or a season even, you may realize, holy cow, this is a problem. I've noticed in my own life when I do time away that my anxiety decreases, that you get more creative and you, I'm reading more and I read a lot already, but more. I could point to other people that I know, but I want to not, I want to protect the guilty this morning. So, um, but I've seen those in other people that I know. You've heard it that being connected all the time is bad for our sleep. We know too much blue light from the screen can disrupt our sleep. Southern Methodist University, Brian Zolotsky reported in the scientific American and poor sleep is terrible for our health. When we're separated from our phones, we experience a lessening of self and a negative physiological state, according to Clayton Russell of the University of Missouri, who co-authored the extended eye self, the impact of iPhone separation on our brain thinking, our emotions, and our bodies, cognition, emotion, and physiology in the Journal of Computer-Mediated Communication. At what point do we say, we need to talk about this? And I'm doing this in a safe sermon format, but some of you need to go way deeper with friends brothers and sisters in Christ, me, a counselor, depending on what's going on in your life. There's more that I could say, but it's not yet listed in the, what is the psychology manual, at least in the States, and I think Canada uses the DSM-5 as well, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but Internet Gaming Disorder is, if you're gaming too much, I could tell stories of previous churches, but to protect the guilty of young men and, and even women, but young men that... Uh, spent way too much time gaming, and it stunted their emotional development. When they should be developing those cognitive and emotional intelligence skills, they're not as much. So, well, I'm, I'm having chats via the game. Yeah, it's not the same. Research says, sorry, well, I don't like that research. More and more research. How many studies do you need before you begin to say, okay, well, stop saying it's fake news. It's not fake news. You don't get to choose your own facts. How about our obsessive checking, our social media? How many of you checked your phone during this sermon already? I was just looking at the time. There's a clock on the wall. <laughs> but remember, I'm becoming Baptist, so I'm getting used to this idea of time. It's new to me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll land this here. In Desiring God, they had an article where they interviewed historian Bruce Hindemarsh of Regent College right here in Vancouver, and talking about this idea of things that shape us historically. And Jonathan Martin also of Religion News said, talks about this idea of technology not being morally neutral. He said this, college professor Alan Noble was aware of the phenomenon in his fascinating new book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking, Seeking Truth, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age, claims that the way many modern Christians converse with their unbelieving friends is little more than orchestrated social games which both sides leave without having wagered anything. You get beyond that in deeper relationship. Jonathan said, I imagine that most people think technology is morally neutral, but you say in his interview with Alan Noble that technology is often a serious barrier to speaking truth to people and to people hearing the gospel. Alan says this, technology creates a barrier in several different ways, but probably the easiest to see is distractions. Squirrel, 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 distractions. Focus, church, you got to hear this this morning. 
He said this, as I mentioned in the book, the gospel about Jesus and God's love is is cognitively taxing. It takes mental energy, which doesn't mean you have to be smart to understand the gospel, but you do need the mental space to reflect on your own sin and your own brokenness and your blessedness and your need for redemption. Technology tends to suck up all of your free space, so you want to be constantly distracted, whether that means the radio's on, the TV's on, and I'm always on my phone. You're missing something that God wants to do deep within you you to make you flourish and become alive and become the kind of person that you believe you've been called to be but technology wants to rob that from you take that from you steal that from you it is value laden people who create it want to keep you engaged and looking for ad space and eyeballs it is not or the propaganda of the state depending on where you live they want to keep your mind away from going deep in relationship and deep with god that might change you and form you as a more flourishing alive fully alive human when any technology is designed Jane Westmore, science social researcher at Arizona State University, I quoted him earlier, said this, when any technology is designed, it's usually designed with the purpose and goals in mind. Values underline those purpose and goals. And he said, you were seeing this, though, that some of us are beginning to develop our own rules about our cell phones because we recognize something is being lost. There's a lot of good, but there's something also nefarious that needs to be addressed. In studying the Amish, The Amish adopt technology, and I've had former Amish people in a church in Sarasota, former Amish people who embraced a whole bunch of technology, um, but they asked some good spiritual questions. Before we adopt this technology, we need to see how it impacts others, whether that's one person in their community experimenting with it, or they look at all of us outside of their community, and according to Amish, the world's divided up into two categories. It's the Amish and the English. All of us here, you're all English. Well, I'm from Asia. No, you're English, according to the Amish. Everybody's English who's not Amish. So, okay, that's the oversimplification, right? Um, But this idea, they say, well, how is it impacting society around us? They don't adopt the automobile and the TV very intentionally, even though many of them have cell phones and computers in some of their businesses, but they don't adopt these other things because they think it tears away too much about closeness. Automobile means that I don't care as much about my immediate networks of people and relationships. Now, I'm not saying we need to become Amish, but we do need to ask some of these questions about technology. So let's end by talking about practices of holy disruption. And this I'll do quickly for sake of time. Adam Jeske, who was wrestling with his own addiction, said we no longer make idols out of gold or wood. This is the last part of the outline if you're following along. That interferes with our communion. But he said, what I did to fight spiritual consequences of my tech addiction, as he calls it, is celebrate the Sabbath. He said, I, it'll be hard and uncomfortable at first, but an entire day without screens is refreshing. God commanded the Israelites to rest, showing their connection to him. So they didn't distract themselves with work. They didn't distract themselves with toil. They were to worship. Excuse me. They were to play. They were to delight. They were to do things that they didn't do in their normal work life, building their connection to him. And it will be hard at first if you, God tells you, you need to start taking a day off. Put your phone on airplane mode or leave it at home or put it somewhere uh, away. And maybe that means coming to church without your phone for some of you, I might add. I joked about this at Bayshore because in the old building before they sold it, they had these cubbies, which were used to be church newsletter, but they didn't do that anymore. And I said, hey, you could just check your phone in with the usher. Maybe we need to get those locks like at the gym where they have the little, you can set your little 
lock each time and they're little lockers about this size and you can lock your phone up. We could replace that wooden thing back there with a, with a phone check-in. We don't even need an usher to be coat check or phone check, but check it in yourself. For some of you, you, need to be, you may need to just leave your phone in the car. It would change your experience of God in the church 180 degrees. I'm serious. Wrestle with that, the Sabbath. Number two, he says, plan your consumption. Smartphones are useful and always with us, but it doesn't mean we need to check them 50 times or 150 or 500 times a day. Constant checking interrupts our flow, our thinking, our prayer, our conversations and work. If I only consciously connect just two or four times per day, he says, define ahead of time how many times you'll pull out your device, even when those times will be and how long you'll be on. I'm going to check it on the hour. I'm going to check it every, uh, every, on the two hour or whatever. So these are things you can do, checking in with your social media. Other examples, he said, choose your channel. He said, many of us use email and text and Snapchat, Facebook, WhatsApp, Hangouts, Skype, Yik Yak, whatever comes out tomorrow. He said, maybe it's better just to pick one or two preferred ways you're going to communicate and reduce that down and make sure people know and keep on top of those things through notifications, but turn off everything else and enjoy the calm. (laughs) The fourth thing he considers is consider all those social ties. There's probably too many people. Maybe you're staying too connected with too many. You're spreading yourself too thin. He says, watch your heart as his last advice. Practice nothing, or practice rather noticing how you are thinking and feeling as you're connected. I've done times and seasons where I will disconnect from social media for a week, usually about a week or so, sometimes a little longer. And I've noticed it makes a difference. One of my bosses in my church in Toronto, the guy that I reported to at the site there, he, on his day off, was his Sabbath of contact. And he just did not reply. He didn't engage at all in any of those things. Some of us had tested him on it just to make sure. But yeah, so consider that. Watch your heart. My suggestions, and then I'll give you from Hindemarsh from Regent's suggestions real quick. If you're still awake, say amen. I'm sorry, I'm going a little long. He said, my suggestions, make church, church a screen-free experience. Now, I know some of you snarky people are going to say, Pastor, You are aware there's a screen behind you when you preach, right? You understand how we can use technology? When we're screen here, we're all focused on the same things. We're not popping up social media live posts on the Pilgrim website or on the Pilgrim Facebook or Instagram page as we're doing service to distract you. Squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. You can use technology in a unifying way. The organ, the piano, the guitar, different forms of worship technology, but we do them in a unifying way to sing the same lyrics together to the same God and the same theme. So we're having an experience together as a group. That's a different use of technology. But if we had one person playing one song, I mean, it could be a complete... If they were all playing different songs... Now, if that was intentional and we knew what we were doing and it was for a purpose, fine. But if it was unintentional and there was no purpose and no reason, then it would just be chaos. Paul talks about that as the use of gift of tongues in worship, too, how it can be used as a group and how it should not be used as a group. Um, So, again, my suggestions, maybe you need to make church your screen-free place, even if it's only an hour and a half of your life. Keep the phone in the bathroom instead of the bedside. I did that for a couple weeks this summer where I put my phone in the bathroom. Go back to your alarm clock. It's, there's these amazing devices. They're pretty unique. You can make it all kinds of them, but they actually can tell you the time and wake you up. It's pretty simple technology besides your phone. There's too many cartoons of husbands and wives in bed. You've seen them before they're both on their phones facing away from each other. You may have some of that, but if that's going on all the time, it's a problem. We need to wrestle with this. Download apps. There's apps that can tell you how much time you've spent on your phone to tell you the truth. 
Ooh, Jesus, help us. We use the technology to tell you that it's how much of it it's taking. In fact, social media companies are wrestling with this now. The final quick list, Hindemarsh's solution, is study the disconnected. Look at those people who have been disconnected and see how their life is differently. It's what the Amish do with us. Let's see what this technology does to them and whether or not we'll adopt it. Solution two, fast from your phone. We've already talked about this. Fasting maybe for a day or a couple hours or a week or more. Say no to something good to say yes to something better. That's what fasting is about, one of the principles of fasting. You can dig deeper. Solution number three is begin writing a few letters by hand again. Keep Canada Post in business. Besides Amazon and all your online shopping and consumption, you know, I mean, keep, write a letter by hand. It's a discipline. It's a practice. He says, use filters. There are filters, again, technological solutions to help us with the technology. And then finally, five, acknowledge God in technology. That we live in the presence of God, whether we're online or whether we're offline, but that God is everywhere and and is engaged and that we need to recognize that, that our worldview becomes more saturated by his presence. Why don't you stand with me this morning and we're going to sing a song as we prepare to leave. If you're able to do so, please stand. My final thought with you this morning is that as a church, we need to use technology better. We need to leverage it for the kingdom and for relationships and gathering and all of those good things. But we also need to understand it is not neutral. That we are being shaped and that we might lose something as humans Christian or not, we lose something as humans if we don't continue to, to make space for deep thinking and reflection and, and, and also engaging in the experiences of art and beauty and play of which church goes to a whole new level. That's a common grace experience, but in church, worship and study and word and gathering takes that to a whole new level, and there's empowerment of the Holy Spirit that can come, but if we never disconnect from those things that distract us, we never get the benefits of being shaped by those practices. And I don't say this as someone who has got this all down and perfect. I say this as one who is in the boat with you on this. And my own wrestling with how do I engage, how do I disengage, what are the right lines. So please don't hear this as a, Pastor Shell's got this all figured out. I do not. But I wrestle with it and I imagine if I'm wrestling with it, there's others wrestling with it in this place. Let's pray and then we'll sing and go out. Lord, we pray today that... It's sort of different talk about what we do with things that engage our bodies like technology. I pray that you would convict us appropriately, and we know that your conviction is not to condemn us or beat us down, but then to give us tools by grace, empowered by your grace, flowing through your grace, to move forward in the next steps in our relationship with you and with others. And so, Lord, we do repent that we may have taken up technology completely without asking any questions or that we always shove them off, shove them off. Y'all get to that someday, and it's 40, 50, 60 years later or a year later. May this be a day that we say we begin to wrestle with this. For the person that needs to practice Sabbath from their phone, whether that's for hours at a time or a day or whatever, give them the strength they need to make that step. And may their friends not harass them for it. May we be a community that supports one another. Just as we would someone who is recovering from alcoholism, we wouldn't sit there and try to drag them back. The same thing with technology. The same thing with creating pauses in our lives. Lord, continue to move in our midst. Help us to apply our faith in this day and age to glorify you, become fully alive in you, free from sin, 
and death. In Jesus' name, amen.